I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? These words of Jesus from the Gospel according to John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it may seem like a little bit of inside baseball to even mention it, but over the past few weeks, an argument has been brewing among the Christian intellectual community concerning COVID-19. Maybe it's that they're all on lockdown in their apartments and feeling very skittish and feeling very scared, and so they decide to do what they do best, have arguments online. First, we have the editor and staff of First Things. Many people at Christ Church have written for First Things in the past. Indeed, there's even a former parishioner who works at First Things, and I don't mean to throw shade on her today. But they seem to be saying that to do everything we can for the sake of human life in the midst of a global pandemic at the cost of things like justice, beauty, and honor is a kind of terrifying and disastrous sentimentalism. As churches close their doors, they're asking the question, isn't there a fate worse than death? They can say this, surrounded as they are in New York City by roughly half of the nation's over 100,000 COVID-19 cases. That, they can say, that is astounding. It's either brash idealism or courageous virtue, although I do sympathize with some of them. One, uh, in particular, uh, went to have their newborn baby baptized, and the church turned the poor family away. Then we have the wide variety of others who have said, we must do everything in our power, spend whatever dollars we can, do whatever we can, or in fact don't do whatever we can to stem the tide of the virus, even if it means temporarily or even indefinitely closing churches and museums and courts, even if it means temporarily letting go of our most dearly held rights as Americans and even as human beings. Now, I will admit from the outset that I have been troubled by the arguments on both sides. As a Catholic Christian, I believe that human life is an unqualified good. There is no so long as or in so far as about it. Human life is good. Even the life of the most reprobate sinner is precious in the eyes of God. The life of the poor, the life of the rich, all life is precious to God. At the same time, I believe firmly that there is, in fact, a fate worse than death, to be deprived of beauty, to be deprived of God himself. Yet I will say clearly that no one is being asked or should be asked to go without the sacraments or beauty or truth or even freedom during this time, only to limit their exposure to exercise prudential judgment at the behest of the civil authorities so as to make certain that hospitals are not overburdened as they have been in New York City and in Italy and other places now. We can make the sacrifice of our bodily autonomy and obedience to God, making intercession before him for the sake of human life. That is our calling and our vocation in the midst of this crisis. I was so thankful this past week to Father Nicholas and his fiancée Hannah, and I don't want to put you on spot here, for sending notice that their wedding will be limited to their immediate family and they are foregoing a larger gathering and reception. Father Nicholas and Hannah wrote this, We are convinced of our need to witness to Christ and his kingdom by protecting the most vulnerable from disease, caring for the common good, and practicing charity towards our neighbors in this difficult time. That is a great witness. 
I'm also thankful during this time for our bishop's pastoral directives, which have eased my conscience during this time. It's always great when you can say, I have a crisis of conscience, but Lord, judge my bishop rightly, and not me. I am under godly authority, and I am so thankful for that. The church is making an incredible witness during these trying times, and you have to admit in the midst of it that some good has come about. And I say that even as there are family members of Christ Church parishioners who have contracted the virus and are in the hospital, and as there is a bishop in the church of the church on a ventilator, and as at least 50 Italian priests have died due to this virus, yes, now is not the time for sentimentalism. It is the time for courage. It is the time to uphold the value of human life while simultaneously doubling down on the life of the church in her sacramental life and in her witness for the gospel. I have been blown away by how this parish has responded to calls for home communion, how you have been praying in your homes, how you have been creative with this very difficult tension. I can assure you that Father Nicholas and Father Jonathan and I will be very busy all afternoon making multiple communion visits. And I've been amazed. You show up at the house and people know the post-communion prayer by heart. They're ready. Prayer book's out. Ready to do this. The coming two weeks leading up to our celebration of Easter will be the strangest in Christian history. Deep creativity will be required as well as fervent prayer and fasting. And I say all of that this morning not only as a pastoral message to you, but as a way to set the background for a short discussion of these biblical texts. Not only do we see the raising up of the dead in a vision of Ezekiel, but we have the witness of the psalmist, out of the deep have I called unto you, O Lord. He means out of the place of the dead I have called to you. We have the words and admonition of St. Of Saint Paul to be slaves to righteousness as opposed to being slaves to sin, which leads to death. He has just finished writing compellingly of the resurrection. This message in Romans is, in fact, an Easter message. In fact, we will read this message at the Easter Vigil. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ, who was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, Paul says, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you also, in addition to Jesus Christ, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's message is rather simple. It is that the Christian has died to sin, being joined to Christ in his saving death and resurrection in the waters of baptism. It is on this ground that the Christian lives a new life, 
the life of the risen Christ living in us. This coming week, I'm going to celebrate my 40th baptismal anniversary. I'm very excited about that. I mean, it's better than celebrating your 40th birthday. I think 40 years of being joined to Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. I am dead and I am alive because of it. Since the time of the fall, every human being has been cursed by the terminal disease called sin. Through the centuries, we have seen medical advances that no one could easily imagine a short time ago, but in the end, they all fall short. Doctors can uphold their oath to help the sick according to their ability and judgment, but every physician knows or ought to know that there is a time when treatments must stop, when they have to yield to death. Many may push this to one direction or the other, which is always where the moral problems are, but ultimately it is inevitable. Death is inevitable. The fact of death is the final reality that keeps us from being gods, immortal beings, able to endure any pain, any suffering, and emerge victorious. This craft and practice, of course, can become an idol in itself. We are a nation and a people who have idolized health and wellness to an extent that it has become a god for us. What Christians must understand is that it is no sin to prolong or to save human life. It is a holy action, a great good, full of virtue. We see this in Jesus himself today. He weeps over his friend Lazarus, but he also helps him, bringing him up out of the tomb. He responds to the sorrow of Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha. In Lazarus, as in all the signs in the Gospel of John, the light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You can almost see the light of Jesus shining into that dark, dark cave. Yes, this raising of Lazarus from the dead is not the main thing itself. In the Gospel of John, all the miracles are called signs. In the Greek, they're called samion which distinguished Jesus Christ from all others as the light of the world with power to make us children of God. Jesus comes into the terror of death, to a rotting corpse, to two bereaved sisters, and gives a man an extended life. But this is not to be confused with resurrection. Lazarus would still someday die. This sign points us not to the resurrection of Lazarus, but to the uniqueness of the resurrection of Jesus, by which he would conquer death, by which he would prove that he is the resurrection, he is the life. And this is at the heart of the gospel. Not a prolonged life or greater health or the avoidance of illness or greater wealth and the avoidance of poverty, but a new life over which death has no sway. Offered to us through union with the risen Christ. And this is the reality which is so easily forgotten in the current debate, that the Christian is one who has entered into this new life, who has been put to death already 
who has already been granted a victory over the power of death. And let's not be uh, mistaken about this. This viral crisis, this pandemic, is about death's power over human life. It is ultimately about God's judgment of sin. Let's be clear about that. We have to be clear about that, that this is about God's judgment of sin. That's the flip side of the gospel, the bad news that goes with the good news. The bad news is that you and I will certainly die, whether it be soon or later. We have no control over it. We can't repent enough to avoid a certain death. Now we can and should seek to use our reason, seek to use our skills, seek to use all manner of social distancing, all manner of things to prolong life and heal the sick. We can and should make steps to preserve the lives of our neighbors, not least of which being the reason that it might give them more time to repent. It might give them more time to see beauty. It might give them more time to hear the truth. That in itself is a witness to the gospel. But at the end of the day, these are also signs Signs that in Christ, God has put death to flight, giving us the hope of everlasting life. This morning we prayed in the collect that our hearts would be fixed where true joys are to be found. And not just in this easy life, not just in this wonderfully uh, cohesive, wonderfully uh, uh, static life in which nothing really happens that much and it's all very simple and all very easy. Instead, it's this, that among the swift and varied changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Where are those true joys to be found but at the right hand of the Father through union with the risen and ascended Jesus? For the Christian, nowhere. Not in a longer life, not in health, not in wealth, but with Jesus. With Jesus and through Him to be with the Father. This is the hope of all humanity, whether they know it or not. It is the hope which drives us to love our neighbor, and it is the hope which drives us to victory and courage. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.